0: What's up, Dreadheads? I'm John, and welcome to another episode of Talking Dread. And on this episode, it is my pleasure to talk to James C. Harbison III. He is uh, an author. He's got quite a little bit of a resume to list off here. 2015 webcomic Death Cat, the 2020 graphic novel Stay Alive. Uh, the 2021 book may be the best title for a book I've ever heard in my entire life. A Disgusting Supermarket of Death. And his newest book released in 2022 is Comorbidities, which he was gracious enough to send me a copy of. Awesome book. I, I absolutely, as soon as I started, which took me a while because clearly I'm not the bookish kind of person, I then could not put it down once I started reading him. And you can actually find all of these books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble several other uh, sites as well. And you can all find the links to all of that at jamesharberson.com IG, Stay Alive gn and on Twitter, at NovelStay. James, uh, James. we were talking earlier, you like to go by Jim? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to call him Jim. I may slip up and call him James. Welcome to Talking Dreads. Say hey to the dreadheads. And was there anything else that I, I didn't cover in all of that introduction? Feel free to plug away now.
1: Well, there's uh, other content on my uh on my website too um other things i wrote uh there's an uh, audio drama that i a link to an audio drama i wrote that was uh that was released by chilling tales for dark nights simply scary podcast in 2018 oh, okay and a link to another short story i i did for chilling tales for dark nights that was published in late 2021 like literally i think it was uh, january 31st 2021 so
0: so for for that uh, that that uh, drama thing you did now, where did you just write it? Did you record it as well, like the voice it. And stuff? Oh, okay, okay. So uh, and you said what what was uh, who who released
1: that? Uh, the Simply Scary Podcast, which is a a branch of the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.
0: Oh, okay, Enterprise. gotcha. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So so you just wrote it and they did the performance and everything like that. That's All correct. right. So and I'm guessing they can find that on Spotify, Apple, pretty much anywhere yeah. there's podcasts, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's a and, link to it on my website.
0: So. Okay. Okay. So was that in like the audio? Cause I saw there was a few links on your website to some different interviews. So is it in kind of that section where there's like an no, audio link
1: section? It's under works.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, so there everyone goes for everybody who likes podcasts, probably way better than this one. Go check out what actual good podcasts sound like. And go check out Jim's <laughs> link. All right. So let's kick off into some questions, man. Um, first of all, Thank you so much for doing this uh, really enjoy comorbidities. I've got to check out the other stuff, uh, but found that completely fascinating. Love the style of it and everything like that. Can't recommend it highly enough. So what uh, did you get into horror at an early age? Was it something that you were into like as a kid or did you kind of, I was a late bloomer cause I was brought up very religious. So I'm always fascinated to know when other people got into horror and, and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I, I guess I just sort of gravitated to it. Okay. The, the, my favorite movie, my favorite horror property when I was a kid, I would never have called it a horror property then, <laughs> was the original Halloween two from nineteen eighty one. Okay. In which Mike, Michael Myers wipes out the hospital staff systematically while hunting Laurie Strode. Yeah. And that always, you know, my my mother's a nurse. There are a lot of nurses and doctors in my family, and I, you know it warped my mind in the sense that this place of healing and sanctuary would become a charnel house.
2: Right. Absolutely.
1: So, but the, the the one that really left a mark, uh, which I saw, I believe I saw before there were two, actually two things I saw before Halloween Two, The first was the first adaptation of Salem's lot. Okay. Um, which was a television miniseries. I think Toby Hooper directed it.
2: Okay. Oh, and, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You know, there are some scenes in that movie that you will never unsee, especially when the one brother who's been v- turned into a vampire goes to his, the other brother's hospital room and he's scratching at the window, in the window. Well, see,
0: and now you see, even then you're bringing up a hospital scene from that. So yeah, again, yeah, it's kind of got exactly. that flow of your family yeah. it being in the the, uh, the business of healing others. And you're finding the nice juxtaposition yeah. there.
1: Yeah. Good good point. I'm glad you made
0: it.
1: <laughs> the other one was uh, Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner. Another I don't think made, I've
0: ever even heard of that.
1: Well, there's a there's a free Rift Tracks version of it on Amazon Prime. Oh, now it's, I got to check that out. I love yeah, Rift Tracks. <laughs> William Shatner's the star, okay. I think this was right around the time he started TJ Hooker. Okay. And and it's about this it's remember in the 70s there was all this concern over environmental Environmental poisoning by toxic waste and what would oh, happen yeah. to the earth and well the premise is that this toxic waste spill and near this small Arizona town turns the local tarantula population absolutely lethal. <laughs> so these tarantulas start wiping out the town slowly and surely, and it is just a terrifying film if you are arachnophobic, which I have been for a long time. So, which is so, funny
0: enough, my uh, my wife who I co-host the main show with Joe extreme arachnophobic and we were actually earlier today we rewatched the movie arachnophobia and i remember sitting yeah. there the whole time being like why do you do this like you have a genuine terrifying fear of it she was like well that's the thing because she has the iron stomach when it comes to horror she yeah. can handle anything and i'm the wuss that's over there with my, my you know peeking through my fingers but she's like this is like the only thing that actually scares me and i was like okay yeah. fair enough there i guess that's you know that, whatever that
1: scene where the uh where the funeral home owner and his wife are watching wheel of fortune and oh. the spiders bite them and they're like dead. And they're checking them out and the spider goes over the face. Yeah. And, it comes out of his uh, nose
0: and everything yeah. like that. And when, and when she reaches in with the popcorn and I, and I joked with her and she goes to take a bite. I was like, now you know that that spider crunched exactly like popcorn did. And she was like, Oh, <laughs> but no, that's, I'm going to check that movie out. Cause it kind of, it reminds me, yeah, in the seventies, it was almost like a revival of like atomic age. Uh, of like in Correct. the 50s and stuff where yeah. we th- where they were it, at that point everyone was terrified of nuclear because they had they didn't really have a firm grasp on what it was and then it did kind of morph with the you know with the flower kids and stuff like that into yeah. concerns about the environment but it was kind of the same thing of oh there's these giant right. monsters and stuff uh, like that because you know someone threw a car battery in the ocean
1: so <laughs> richard nixon helped create the epa in like what 1970. Uh. So suddenly there was a massive government organization to bring these issues to the fore in a in a systematic way, and so you know, you know, queue all of the the scaremongering. Oh yeah, you know, what is it? There's like squirm. There's one about worms. There's one about frogs. There's the piranha one. You know, Oh
0: yeah, is that the one that they uh, the piranha they remade that or did yeah. like a, re, a remade something? Piranha three D Yeah, I know. Yeah, because the only reason I paid any attention to it, I'm a big fan of Alexander Aja, Aja Aja or something. He's a French director. He did High Tension, and then he did the remake yeah. of The Hills Have Eyes, which I I loved that remake, one of the better remakes in my opinion. So I hadn't heard from for or of him for a while, and then I found out he was doing that, and I was like, oh shit, like you know, like what kind of favors do you now? Oh, so. When, with with your love of horror, I think a lot of people you know usually if you have a big love of horror it 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 does affect you in some way as far as how you turn out as an adult um, whether that's creating you know something within the horror community or you know really having kind of a strong devotion to horror if that's collecting you know tattooing your body with it, stuff like that so what what made you decide to take your your love and interest of horror and put it into into you know the written word?
1: Well, I didn't plan that to happen necessarily. I ended up after college i I took a master's degree and then I went to law school and I was a I was a litigator for a long time. And I I you know I guess that my my love of horror never went away it right. was just percolating in the background. And then when I, I practiced criminal defense law, I saw all kinds of terrible things happening under the aegis of justice, the right. justice system. And that was really terrifying, too, right? Because it, <laughs> it allows people to believe they're doing the right thing while they're doing something terrible at the same time. Like the Stanley Milgram experiments uh, from the 1960s, you probably re- have heard of those where
0: uh, refresh me because I, I, not, it's not ringing a bell just by that now, name
1: Stanley Milgram was a psychologist at a psychology professor at Yale University, and in the '60s he brought a bunch of people off the streets of New Haven, you know just average citizens, not Yale students, and he submitted them to a test, an experiment in which they were in which they would sit at a, con- a control panel and ask um another subject in another room unseen to them yes
0: yes okay yeah. and they were like hey they would they would because of and it was the whole thing of like if you have enough authority cuz they would they would shock them or something yeah. like that and they you know they would Correct. hear the screams and stuff and not want right. to but because there was an authority figure present right. telling them that this is what they should okay yes 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 okay so now i am familiar yeah. with that then
1: yeah so i i, I saw Basically, a whole class of people—people people accused of crimes or people convicted—as like a disposable class of people. Right. And you know that, you know that sort of pushed me into writing. I I started writing comedy and crime. My first, actually, I started writing screenplays. My first screenplay was a comedy, crime, revenge thing. And I, with my then co-author, I I moved into horror. But I was always sort of the things that scared me were, you know, the ability of people to deceive other people into doing terrible things, but also the ability of people to, like I said before, to acquit themselves of any culpability in doing terrible things, because they can point at a system or a, a structure that allows them to say, well, you know, I was just following orders or right. what have you. And, you know, that I don't write about that exclusively, but, you know, it animated my sensibilities some and since i always loved horror i I figured you know well this would be a cool story i always had ideas for like you know what would be a fun horror story what horror movie would i really like to see Mm -hmm. i have a friend who's a who's a professor of political science and he he's written a couple books and he uh he said what's the book you want to see written you know and so that's what i did I, i i wrote stories that i wanted to see that I hadn't really seen or variations on well-developed tropes or, or styles of horror that I at least hadn't really seen before. So, you know, and that's what animates me, you know, it's like, what scares me? And it, it's difficult now. I mean, yeah. here's something that really scared me, really hit me hard. The other night actually was Wednesday. I think I watched, I had never seen the full cut director's cut of apocalypse now.
2: Oh, okay. The, wow.
1: And uh, that was a shattering film. It really yeah. was. That scene where they the the machine gunner in the in the boat just machine guns all these people Vietnamese people who are blameless in this other boat because he's you know terrified, trigger happy. Right. You know the, this. You know stuff like that, where it just comes out of sort of out of nowhere. You know there's a threat, but then it happens and it's irre- irreversible and irredeemable and, you know the 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 ability of reality to just sort of surprise you by with its own horror you know it's like i have you know it's like a dog or a cat that's your pet right and dog you love your cat and suddenly they do they catch another animal and tear it apart you know it's like you know suddenly nature discloses itself in the most horrifying and immediate way right and it you don't love your animal any less, but you're reminded of the fact that, you know, this is the nature of reality.
0: Right. And you and now you, you're you're it's like you uh you you kind of got rocked from your safe space with them. You're like, oh, this is my this is my this is my my companion. And right. then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, no, it, it, it is still an animal. It is still very much capable of being an animal. And yeah, no, I, I completely. That's why I think a lot of people, you know, who who kind of get down on people with horror. Uh, that look down upon it. i I never got it because I'm like,, dude, I uh, there's nothing in my 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 extensive horror movie collection out there that terrifies me more than watching an hour of evening news. Like yeah, absolutely exactly. you know, I, I, to me, like I'm like, that's far less scary than what's actually going on. Its certainly when when everything's taken from the angle of fear, everything is otherization yeah. and it's fear of the other and the unknown. And horror, as always, I mean, and it's even,
1: monetized.
0: Oh, absolutely, and that's what, and that's why fear, fear sells. You know, fear. There is nothing that'll get you more money and more, you know, traction than than to scare the shit out of everybody. And trust me, there's nothing, there's nothing on any of my Blu-rays and DVDs out there that would scare anyone more than you know what they're pushing. You know, so I, I, I completely get you from that space. So before you started. Did you did you always write as a hobby? I mean, obviously, you know, you got a law degree, so you did a you did a boatload of of writing, you know, papers and stuff like that. But did you did you write for fun or
2: anything like that growing up? Or? I wrote
1: a lot of I wrote a lot of nonfiction. I, okay. Uh, when I was practicing law, I practiced law in California and Arizona and New York, and for a little while in the District of Columbia. Um. And when I was practicing in Arizona, I was a uh, freelance columnist for the Arizona Republic. So I wrote a bunch of columns, public policy type columns then, but I didn't really write any proper fiction that, you know, as an adult, something that, you know, I would be interested in getting published until about 2011. So when I decided that I wasn't, you know, being a lawyer was not something i was going to do forever and uh you know i just sort of went from there and i've been writing pretty consistently ever since so
0: right so uh i mean i guess at least when it comes to the stand to the to the to the standpoint of writing fiction who's uh who's some authors you know that uh, maybe not so much that you necessarily kind of feel like you've got the same style as them what what inspired your style who inspired your style you know who who do you find yourself, you know, once you're, once you're going through the final editing phase of one of your writings, you'd be like, oh, you know, there's a touch of so-and-so in there. Oh, that's, that's how so-and-so would have written this. Like, what names come to mind when that happens?
1: Well, Frank Miller, the graphic novelist. Big fan. First and foremost. I mean, when I read Dark Knight Returns in 1986, it just blew my mind. Yeah, just blew my mind, especially the scene where the Joker poisons all the Cub Scouts with free cotton candy. You know, they're, they're, there's so much darkness in that, but it's lyrical and hilarious at the same time. Oh,
0: he, he, he definitely, modern Batman fans owe everything about how dark Batman is to Frank Miller. Like, he completely put that on a whole other path when he did that, and since then, DC has been making money hand over fist, you know, because it, it, it is a dark, twisted tale, and it's a fantastic read. Even if you're not into graphic novels, it's awesome.
1: I also like another major contribution to my sensibility, not yeah, and my writing style to a certain extent were the EC comics of the nineteen fifties before mm. the code before the comics code authority gilded them, mm. um, and they they did all these wonderful horror, science fiction, and crime stories. Uh, people have heard of these tales from the crypt, weird science right all kinds of they did all kinds of stories and they were always 5 to 7 pages and they always had a twist ending an ironic o henry ending and i always loved that about uh that they they were just and they didn't take themselves too seriously sometimes they would break the fourth wall uh but they were still terrifying often mm. and you know you, you it those those went off i read those um a year after i read the the dark knight and and that those two things helped cement my, my orientation and sensibility towards writing fiction in a way that everything that followed did not. I mean, there are other things I enjoyed, but those things really, you know, sort of set the foundation of what I would later be interested in. In terms of prose style, I really love James Elroy, the crime novelist, yeah. and uh, also his work in the big nowhere and what was it? I think it was the big nowhere and white jazz, um, where it's it's <clears throat> it's very truncated and powerful and it's almost it's almost symbolic. It's so attenuated, but it, it's extraordinarily captivating at the same time. Um <clears throat> excuse me. Oh you're fine. And Raymond Chandler, I love his stuff. Um I also really enjoy. Uh, who was the? Uh, who's oh William Gibson, the guy who wrote the Sprawl trilogy, Neuromancer. He more or less he sort of created cyberpunk.
2: Okay, gotcha, um, gotcha.
1: Well, he and uh, Ridley Scott and the people who produced Blade Runner. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that you could properly say that android's dream of electric sheep by Philip K Dick was cyberpunk maybe it was proto cyberpunk
0: right yeah but it was definitely far more uh far more pushed into that realm by the blade runner film so much right. than 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 Philip K Dick actually kind of put it in there uh not to say that that wouldn't have been kind of what what Dick had in mind when he was doing that but but Ridley Scott yeah they they went all in on the the futuristic cyberpunk stuff you know and and i think a lot of people uh it like i mean obviously cyberpunk is huge now like it's it's in you know in the throes of everything like that not to be confused with steampunk for some of the other ones out there that think of the gears and shit like that but yeah yeah, yeah. go go ahead though yeah i'm a am a big Philip K Dick fan so yeah
1: yeah and i think that another writer who i he is and i love his prose style because it's even though it's sort of overwrought it works is h p lovecraft
2: oh yeah yeah there's there's there's
0: nothing uh, you could you could if you've read a couple if you read even a few h p lovecraft even short stories you could you could change the name of it and put someone else's name on it and you would you would be like either this is actually lovecraft or someone is completely ripping lovecraft off it definitely for better or worse for for people however they feel about him he very unique writing style
1: well yeah i mean it flows it it's 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 almost like um, parody it very easily, but you wouldn't be able to emulate it.
2: No, it, no. It, go ahead.
1: And he has. I mean, in some ways, he has sort of the gothic horror feel of Ed, Edgar Allan Poe. Right. But my brother made this observation once. He thought that H. P. Lovecraft might be the first modern horror writer because H. P. Lovecraft was an atheist. Mm. So it's. It's unclear, and and there was an article about him, I think, written by Joyce Carol Oates in the New York Review of Books years ago, like almost 20 years ago, talking about H.P. Lovecraft. She said that part of the power of his writing is that because he was an atheist, he was able to take these concepts, which to many people were sacred, and just play with them,
0: right? Yeah, especially back in his time. I mean, a lot of his stuff would have been just outright considered blasphemous and was by a lot of, and we look at it today and you're like, again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what damn near almost a century has passed. So we sit there and you're like, really, that's, yeah. that's what it was back then. That was, that was dangerous. And probably it was one of the reasons he died, you know, relatively broke and things of that nature. You know, he would, he would be up for a little bit and down for a little bit, but it, yeah, that was, those were no, no topics back then.
1: Yeah. And it's not too, I think he started, I think what, I think he started publishing in roughly 1920.
2: Mm. And it
1: wasn't too long before that that H.L. Mencken was was arrested in Boston because his writings were considered blasphemous or something. Yeah. I mean, ultimately he was released. I don't think he was prosecuted, but yeah. And the Scopes Monkey Trial happened. What was that, 1916 or 17? Um, uh, yeah,
0: I, I was thinking to say either that or like early 20s, but yeah, sometime around there for sure.
1: Yeah. So the, there was this cauldron of, of fear among traditional uh, Americans who really had traditional religious views about reality. Mm. There are all these modernist types who were just saying, just, just doing what they wanted to do. And it was untenable. Right. Right. So Americans have a tendency. I, it's not just Americans, but, and it, it feeds my interest in horror. They, they tend to see any challenge to their outlook as an existential threat. Right. Oh Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's not just a difference of opinion. It's an existential threat, right? Well, and, it has to be destroyed.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, And, and, it, and it's crazy because if you look throughout American history, often what the quote unquote moderates or whatever of the time, you know, the status quo of that time, whatever they're pushing back against, it always seems to, you know, whatever they're fighting against seems to ultimately overcome them and become a major thing, I think Americans, we have this, uh, ultimately, uh, most of us have this thing of, I don't care if you say the oven's hot, or the stove is hot, I, I want to touch it and make sure it's hot. And, yeah. and that leads me actually into my next question, because... And if you're
1: jackass, they want to do that, yeah. to do it while everybody laughs at it. Right, yeah, yeah they're,
0: they're going to, yeah, we're, they're gonna, you're going to see how long you can keep your hand on the stove at that point for money. But it does, it goes that way because, I mean, I think that uh, America is a very, you know, I'm not a religious person. I, I don't care what you do as long as you're doing it peacefully. Um, but uh, America is, has, has is, is got so much, is very unique compared to k- kind of what we are supposed to be with how much Protestant ilk is in our creation. And Correct. it's, it's just, it's, it's literally held on. The, the whole time, I, I, I mean, right. I, obviously it's not as powerful today as it used to be, but I mean, it's been a a really hard fought almost three hundred years to get it to that point. But I think now you're starting to see that again. Like I had said, if 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 we if we're told it's bad for us, you know, well now, I, well now, why is it bad for me? Let me try it and see if it's bad for me. So, do you think that that kind of leads into you know, kind of how fascinated we we are as a country? with serial killers, with true crime, with horror. You know, a lot of – it used to horror was very stigmatized. and, And it still kind of is now horror movies. But the same housewives and, you know, corporate dads that'll shit on me for watching some crappy horror movie, you know, they're watching, they're watching, you know, they're watching Dahmer on Netflix. You know, yeah. they're, they're watching, I've always, South Park used to call it informative murder porn or whatever they, you know, they're, they're all of, they're all about that. Like they think it's crazy that, yeah. you know, I, you know, like that I'm excited about what I'm sure is going to be a terrible movie featuring Winnie the Pooh killing people. I'm the sick bastard, but you know, they're watching nothing but true crime yeah. over dramatized stuff. I mean, do you, do you think that that's, uh, well, you know, I th- go ahead.
1: It's funny because in some ways, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne nailed the American character, at least the Puritan Protestant American character. In some ways, we're always going to be those Puritans scared shitless in the woods, right? Mm. Believing that the, the devil is around every corner. And I'm thinking about young Goodman Brown, the short story he wrote, where the guy goes out into the, into the woods. He puts his faith in a box. He goes out into the woods and, and meets the devil or something.
2: Mm.
1: And I think that what's really interesting is we have this fascination with the with the devil, with evil, you know because we our our forebears were these extreme religious extremists who didn't think that the Christians in at least England were Christian enough, and I yeah. think that the English actually expelled them because yeah. they were they were too uh extreme and so however, when you merge that with the fact that we created our own culture there, you know, it was, we authored it in many ways, at least the settlers, the pilgrims, the people who came here as, as immigrants did, Mm -hmm. you know, American, what is America for is a question people ask, you know, what is America? And it's, it's a work in it's, it's like jazz. It's like constantly being rewritten. And Benjamin Franklin himself, Noticed this in in his autobiography, I think it was. He he said he was a he was a pu- a printer, and he said that the American character is like resettable type, right? Yeah. And so it's funny when this comes down to evil and what's forbidden. It's you know you get this you know morbid curiosity to begin with because we have this insane religiosity, but then we have this you know individuality, and so it's like. You're not going to tell me what I can't look at or read or watch. Right. How dare you, right? Right. And so these things, multi- these things work together to make it so that, of course, we're going to be obsessed with true crime and horror and all this other stuff. I mean, I think horror is like the only recession-proof form of entertainment.
2: Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You could. It, there's always enough money because I mean, it, I mean, you got to think about. I mean, some of the, the, the some people would not believe the minute budgets. That some horror is made and you may sit there and be like, there's no way this made money. Well, yeah, if they made it for less than 10,000 bucks, I promise you it's made money. And uh, because yeah. again, like even, even a lot of people, it's kind of like pizza. If you like pizza, you're like, yeah, I like pizza. I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's fresh. I don't care if it sat in the fridge all night. I like the pizza. Pizza's good. It's the same thing. Horror. You know, if you like horror, you like good horror, bad horror, you appreciate all of it.
1: Well, I think Blair Witch Project was made for what, like three hundred and fifty thousand or something. No, or no if I, it was well, uh, it was it was under a million dollars. Yeah, well, I, I and I know million dollars,
0: and I know Paranormal Activity. I think was made for less than twenty five thousand. I think they like rented the house for like a week, and it was all that. So I mean, and look at that 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 franchise has probably pushed pushing close to a billion dollars in revenue at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's it's insane but you know and that's the, well, the, great, that's
1: the, the great thing about horror like that is that you use the audience's imagination against them
2: yes right
1: because what you can imagine often is much more horrifying than anything that can be put on screen one of my favorite horror movies is the haunting from 1990 sorry 1963 which is based on shirley jackson's novel the haunting of hill house mm. and that is that is a Wonderful horror film because it uses atmospherics to scare you, you know, and it there's almost I don't think there's any blood, you know, it's it's there's nothing lurid about it. It's just terrifying because you go into this big, creepy house and, you know, it has a terrible backstory mm-hmm. and that's all you need to do. You know, the rest is just, you know, you, you use the audience against itself.
0: Which which makes sense because if you think about it, when when individuals are the most or
1: for itself, since they want to be scared,
0: right? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We and we go in there wanting to feel it, you know. But it's it's you know we're we're the most vulnerable and scared when we're children, and most of us when we're kids, we're not afraid that some boogeyman's going to bust into the 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 door with a chainsaw. We're afraid of the hallway that's too dark. You know, we're afraid when, when the house creaks and we don't know what that is, what made that sound. So, you know, it, that's the kind of horror that's very, very effective and things of that nature. Um, I, I wanted to get into real
1: I quick. I still is, have Michael go ahead, go ahead. Myers nightmares. I still have Michael Myers nightmares.
0: Well, see, but even with him, he was he was so slow and unaggressive, especially early on. You know, you know even the, in the first movie, they refer to him as the shape. You know, and and that kind of plays into it too. You know, often he was a figure in the dark, and things of that nature. He wasn't going to chase after you, and st- he didn't have to. Like he just was there, and that's that's I find terrifying as well. Um, as we're getting kind of towards the end of this, I wanted to ask because it seems like you had kind of you kind of broke into writing uh, based on your love of graphic novels, uh, with, with you did um, the webcomic of Death Cat, and then Stay Alive. What made you transition out of, you know, kind of webcomic, graphic novel area to go into actually like just, I guess, book format with when it came to a disgusting supermarket of
2: death and comorbidities?
1: Well, part of it was um, I wanted to try out different uh, media, you know, different ways to get your stories out. And the graphic novel, Stay Alive, took years to put together. it it was a labor of love and you know death cat didn't take quite that long obviously it took a i don't know a month or two but at least when you write on your own there's no intermediate pro there's no intermediate um thing you have to deal with it's just you write it down and then you refine it and you see where you put it out into the world and see where it goes so i mean i enjoy writing screenplays because i'm more visually oriented but I think you know, I also enjoy writing what I've written. I, I tend to write short because I, I tend to think that horror works best, not always, but generally works best when it's short. It's so pungent. Now,
0: there's, there's three stories in comorbidities, of, if I'm remembering correctly. Right. How, many's right. in, how many are in A Disgusting Supermarket of Death? 22. Okay, so those are much shorter right. stories in there. Okay, okay, Correct,
1: yeah. And that's how I prefer it. I mean, Like the old E.C. comics, five to seven pages, bang, 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 bang. You know, and I think that horror and comedy are particularly suited to this because you have to maintain a certain tension right. and it's difficult to maintain tension over a long period of time. You can, I mean, or you can make it into a more brooding or reflective sort of philosophical thing like The Shining yeah. or The Exorcist. but. Generally speaking, most horror you will find is not going to go past probably an hour and 45 minutes, you know, because it's 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 a difficult thing to keep that tension going.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, And, and, I, I and it's draining
1: it's, to watch.
0: Oh, it absolutely can be. And especially like if anyone watches horror movies like I do, I often will sit there and be like, man, this is really good. I really hope they don't fuck this ending up. Because horror is yeah. notorious for, for doing everything good. And then it's like they get to the, like, the last 10 pages and they go, oh, shit, we have to wrap this up. And we may need to leave room for a sequel. Does anybody have an idea? And then yeah. it's just throwing at the wall, see what sticks. But I, I like the way that you say that about the short story. Because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 38. I still think one of the most effective horror books of all times is scary stories to tell in the dark. By what was it? Uh, Schwartz. I forget. Alvin it. Schwartz. It, yes. And, and A, the, the, the drawings are still to this day horrifying. I, though, some of the creepiest drawings I've ever seen. But it is that way. It's, I mean, I forget. I, I recently bought, I think I was at a Barnes and Noble. Actually, I think I was at a second and Charles. And they had the compendium that had like all three of them all in one mm-hmm. big thing. And this was a few years back and I was with my eldest. I think at that point he was like maybe 10 And so, and he was like, what is that? I was like, this was in the public library at my elementary school. And, you know, my severely religious mother had no idea they would have something in there like this. So this was like actually one of the first horror things I got to experience. And he was flipping through it. He was like, they let you read this then? I was like, right. I was like, isn't that messed up? Look at that shit. (laughs) And, uh, but I, I think that's why it works. I am not the biggest. Uh, I, I, again, especially like you say with horror, horror, it's, it, it has, it has its welcomed period, you know, 90, to 90 to 110 minutes is perfect. And yeah, if you're asking me and I'm, I'm sure all the Stephen King and Kubrick are not Kubrick Kuntz fans out there would slay me for this. So a lot of the reason why I don't read a lot of that stuff is like, I, the tension dies and then rises and dies and rises and stuff. So it's just not my forte. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's all that's one of the reasons I was able to get through comorbidities very quickly. I probably hadn't read a full book in years. But it was one of those things where I would sit there and be like, oh, oh wow, man, this is this is about to wrap up. Shit. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Let's keep going. I'll I'll wrap up this first story and then I'll go to bed. You know, I I liked that feeling.
1: Yeah, that's I, I think that's the best delivery device or way to deliver horror. You know, it's 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 something it's like getting punched in the face by or you know, what is it? There, there was some famous uh, political columnist who said that a conservative is a, is a liberal who gets mugged by reality. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I I think that's an interesting metaphor. And I, I like to apply it to horror. You know, it's like horror is a punch in the face that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, or even if it comes out, of, even if you sort of know it's coming, if it's you know, if it's unexpected, then it's still going to be horrific so right. you know and it's you know that way if you if you make it if it's not a punch in the face you know because a punch in the face is a punch in the face right yeah. there's nothing like it it's like there's yeah. a whole education and being punched in the face
2: yeah that's the and whole premise that, of fight club you know? <laughs> right
1: exactly and so that's the best way to experience horror that and i wanted to add humor yeah. uh horror without humor to me is generally not appealing because the like you said the evening news the real world is more than horrific enough yeah and simply doing horror for the sake of horror and showing terrible things even if they are you know well well presented and novel it it, it just it feels like pornography you know it's like eh, you know (laughs) it's not that interesting because there's nothing lyrical about it there's nothing Artistically redeeming about it potentially. I mean, sometimes there is, but most of the time, I my two favorite horror films accordingly are *Return of the Living Dead* from 1985, great one, wow. and also *Reanimator* from 1985.
0: That's that's definitely shows that, and I mean, again, but those those movies have some very effective scenes and some awesome comedy, and it's yes. I mean, and it, and there's a lot of failed examples of people trying to make a funny horror movie. And I mean, they fall flat on their damn face and yeah. both of those there's, there's a reason why people still talk about those movies, because, you know, what was that? Uh, what was it that the, when he's on the, the mic and he's like, send more cops or something like that? Send more
1: paramedics. Send yes, more cops. yes. Because, yeah. you know,
0: in him, like I, that's that I could sit there and giggle at that every single time. So I there is an art punk form to that
1: after I think there's a punk band named send more paramedics.
0: Oh, probably, and I and I know, like you know, Tar Man from that movie is like yeah. you know he's he's almost his own like iconic, boy. Well, especially, there's been a resurgence in popularity for that movie over the past yeah. like half decade, and like it's crazy, just all the different places I'll see Tar Man stuff on, and I'm like, if I'm not saying, I think that movie was like basically like a, a complete bust at the time. Like I don't think it. I remember seeing it like sunday afternoon on like tbs and stuff back in the day and being like you know when i was younger being like what the shit what is this like it's funny zombies that's weird
1: it's interesting because dan o'bannon the guy who wrote and directed it is the guy who did alien Mm. so the he wrote the script for the original alien
2: oh wow okay
1: so he already had horror credentials going into this um the only other horror comedy thing i can think of recent vintage i mean they're obviously the evil dead movies they're great right but the one that really in mind is fido from 2006 uh, bruce canadian... campbell
0: bruce campbell was in that right
1: no no, no. billy Connolly. billy
0: Connolly, scottish okay. comedian
1: fido is a canadian is a canadian horror film um, the little boy has in... a
0: zombie as a pet right right so, okay okay yeah okay yeah no, that's that, was, just, that was another that's one a, i think that i watched delightful.
1: It. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was
0: saying, I think I watched that one solely because the box art of it looked like really weird. I was like, what the shit is this?
2: Like, (laughs) No,
1: but the, you know, the idea that people have come to domesticate and live with the zombies and the threat of zombification and the, the Zomcon, the corporation that has thoroughly monetized all this and who creates the zombie manservants, um, has this ad, um, help grandpa's fallen and he's getting back up. Right. <laughs> so they have this whole service that will take old people away from you because once they die, they'll zombify and come back and attack you. <laughs> and so it's like, it's like, Oh, well, you know, grandpa, you're, you're kind of old now. So we're, we're just going to pack you off. Right. right. I mean, there's all this morbid humor. And it's just the
0: Right. And of course we would figure out a way to make a zombie apocalypse profitable. Someone would make sure that they can make billions of dollars off of it, you know?
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, so now, in wrapping up, I wanted to ask you one more thing. I mean, clearly, someone that had a life kind of, you know, in one direction, and then, I mean, just did a complete 180 with where you're going. Um, what advice would you give to anybody who's, you know, an as- aspiring author or creator, or, you know, particularly someone who is kind of thinking about, you know, hey, I've had this passion for a while and you know but i'm kind of set in this path you know like what what kind of advice would you give them as far as you know breaking out of that and giving it a shot and really pushing towards it
1: well what i did if you're going to write i assume you're talking about writing fiction um
0: yeah, well yeah let's do that since that's that's kind of you know where where you're at yeah but i think it would be probably you know crossover to any kind of thing they wanted yeah. to do
1: well i mean if you want to write just write you know, pick something you want to write about and then, you know, throw down some ideas about why you like it and then go from there, maybe create an outline. In terms of writing longer form stuff, well, even shorter form, I read this screenplay book that is still the essence, the heart of my structure in stories. It's called um, Screenplay, and it's by a now-dead uh, Expert of screenplay writing named Sid Field S Y D Field, mm. and it's it's a magnificent book. And I'd like to say that if I'd had an opportunity to read this book before I studied literature, you know, I, I would have had no problems at all studying literature because it 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 basically teaches you how to autopsy a piece of fiction in the in the idea you know and towards the end of of creating one, and so it gives you the basic three X structure. Teaches you about plots, subplots, themes, character development, character arcs. It's all in there, and it's like a two hundred page book. Mm. It's a terrific book, and if you, unless you want to write fiction that is nonlinear and you know experimental, you really need to have structure. And so, what you need to do is you need to pick things you want to write about, and I tend to do, I tend to do speculative fiction. Typic, you know, a lot of things people write about human drama uh, doesn't interest me that much. I love adventure, I love horror, I love crime and sci-fi, but mostly horror. And then, you know, read this book. This book will is an encouraging, very educational book. And then just think, think of a story you'd like to tell, and then outline it. You know, Pick your, pick, pick your axe, pick your midpoint, know what the ending is, and then just start fleshing it out. Follow what the book says. The book is really simple to follow. And it's how I still write anything I write. And it's, you know, it's sort of, it's a great, it's, it's like, I, w- I wouldn't say screenplay writing for dummies, but it, it's simple. The instructions are simple. And even though it's for screenwriting, you can use it for any kind of, any kind of long form creative writing, right. because the, the structure is the structure. And you'll find there's even a book, I think that there's at least one book that suggests that, and, and I'm sure there are other people who have observed this, you know, the three X structure is a universal concept. Right. So this book applies it to screenwriting, but it's, uh, you know, it's something that can be applied to any kind of creative writing. And the reason that that is valuable is that it gives you a framework to think about how you want to tell your story. Right. Right. And it, it, it takes a jumbled mass, at least in my experience, of ideas and possibilities and gives you a way, gives you something to hang it all on. And then a method of figuring out how you want to tell it, what you want to include, what you want to leave out. And if you read this book and follow what it tells you to do, you'll be 90% of your way there to... Actually, the last 10% is the hardest actually writing the thing, but, right. you know, it it, it gives you a, a good way to organize your thoughts and to clarify your thinking about how you want to write your story.
0: Well, and I'll even say this, uh, the last episode of Talking Dread, I was talking to filmmaker, uh, DJ, um, oh my God, what, DJ remarked. There we go. I don't know why his last name was strip, uh, skipping me. And I, I, he, you know, um, he's getting ready to do his first feature length, um, and I, I told him I was like, I think it's very important for people to, to realize that it's, and particularly in writing, I think a lot of people get inundated with the fact that oh, I've got to write 200 pages, I've got to write 300 pages. No, you don't. Like, there's authors that have made entire careers out of out of compilations of short stories, you right. know. And and I and I I was telling him I was like I, you know, I I think a lot of people really need to start realizing there's nothing wrong with making a 10 minute film you got to start somewhere and you know and i had watched several of his short films and it was crazy you know from from film to film how much better his films were looking and it was solely because he had made one um and i mean you know you sit there and think even with with coming from a disgusting supermarket of death where you had 20 plus short stories in there to then go into comorbidities where you have three and you know so they're longer form stories but you know i I i I've, I think I mean do you do you agree with that that people really need to quit worrying so much about being the next yeah. 500 page Stephen King yeah. author?
1: I I rarely read fiction that justifies its length. Right. Either even if the writer is brilliant, I tend to find the top the subject matter dull, or the subject matter is great but the writing is just eh, and there's so much filler. There's so many yeah. unnecessary characters or descriptions or you know and i i mean this is my aesthetic disposition um it's like this is one of the reasons i like scandinavian design and architecture who knows i like simple and powerful right. and so i think that i think people's tastes have become more refined over time by television and other things so it's unclear to me that everybody wants to sit down and read a 500 page novel now i think that most people your attention spans are already attenuated by technology, right. and the fact that there's so much information out there to accommodate or process. So it's it's much easier to just have something that is short and pungent. And you know, for entertainment, it's unclear that you know you need it to be more than that. I mean, obviously, if you want to write something deeply philosophical, it's more difficult. But still, I mean, here's a good example there's an episode of Rick and Morty in which I think it might be the episode in which it's the one where, uh, where his dad go to Pluto because they're insisting Pluto's a planet. It's in the first right, season. Yeah. Yeah. But they're sitting in the opening scene. They're sitting at the breakfast table and Rick is creating this little robot.
0: Oh, the butter. And, the, he's just there to pass yeah, butter. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And like so that's the greatest explanation of existentialism I've ever seen. Trillion.
0: Right. Dumb. Yeah, yeah. When he's like, yeah, he's like, is that all I was designed for? And he's like, yeah, but then he just, oh God. Like
1: that was, oh, yeah. get in line. Yeah. You know? And and it's stuff like that. That is I love. It. I mean, I'm predisposed to poetry over prose. And that's one of the reasons. Because if you can if you can capture, you know, a, a powerful, complicated concept in a very simple way, you've actually achieved something. Right. So and and that's what I try to do.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean there is something to be said on if, if you, ca- I mean, I think anybody with enough, with enough time and enough pages could make anything work out eventually. Uh, yeah. it, it, but it, to me, it, there's something to be said about someone who can make it work out in 30 or 40 pages versus someone that it takes three to 500 pages to do it. And again, I, there's, there's people who are about that. I mean, unless, but t- you're right, man, just with the, the flow of modern life, uh, how busy we tend to be and all the options we have i mean if you're enjoying reading 400 500 page books more power to you but that's probably about your biggest form of entertainment you you, you don't have much time for anything else that's cool live your to life do it yeah
2: there you go <laughs> well it's
1: like what's that you album that came out in 1991 i think it's the it's um the song until the end of the world where there's this wonderful line it's like um, you miss too much these days when you or if you stop to think mm. you know and and I think that that is the ethos of the information age. Yeah. And so you know, it's very difficult to get people to that's why you see this proliferation of meditation and zen philosophy because people are overloaded and they're looking for a way to offload and yeah. you know center themselves and that's why, you know, I think short and sweet is generally better. You know, um, I mean, obviously, if you lived in a simpler, slower time, you would want something longer and, and more reflective. But, yeah. you know, you, you write stuff according to your time, place and circumstances to a certain extent, inevitably. And, you know, I don't have a problem doing that. I mean, that doesn't mean I won't write longer fiction. I'm working on my first novel now. But even then, I can't imagine it being more than 200 pages. So. Right. You know, so so just, just, so
0: when are we supposed to expect is that going to be out in 2023 or do you
2: think 2024
1: I'm hoping 2023 Okay um I'm working on I'm working on another project right now and it's 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 on a deadline so um I've had to put the novel on the back burner but you know I'm working on it you know in bits and starts I've got I've always got several projects percolating so
0: Gotcha. can you tell us any? Can you tell us anything about what you got coming up that's on the deadline uh
1: no i, I i'm sorry i can't okay all right let's Fair just enough. say it's awesome so,
0: okay well maybe we'll have to have you back on when it's time for that to come out when you can finally can reveal some more things about that one
1: yeah yeah well That'll hey be awesome thank you jim
0: i i thank you so much for setting up this time and talking to me and the dreadheads again everyone who's listening um you can visit JamesHarberson.com. It's got links to all of his works where you can uh, buy them. Highly recommend. If any of his other stuff is as good as comorbidities, you need to own the entire catalog that this guy has put out. Cannot recommend comorbidities enough. I, I fucking, I, I was a joy. And the art style, by the way, your the, the art styles that you use, I, I love it. Just just the, the even the cover of comorbidities immediately made me want to read it. Um, yeah, so... Stephen.
1: Our artist is Stephen Baskerville, and he is an extraordinary. I mean, he's self-evidently geni- a genius, and his he is a British. He's located, I think, outside London, and mm-hmm. he worked for Marvel UK. He's worked for video game companies. He worked for Edgemont Fleetway, which owns Judge Dredd, in 2000 AD. Oh, nice. And he's just, you know, he's got this wonderfully supple line and and this wonderful ability to do all kinds of stuff. He did the he did the illustrations for my website too. So I, okay,
0: that makes sense because everything has on your website has that aesthetic running throughout. And I loved it. I was honestly, I just kept clicking around your website to, to see all the different art that would pop up on each
2: different page.
1: <laughs> yeah. So his website, I think, is carbonmade.com. Uh Steven Baskerville. Definitely check out his stuff. He's just enormously talented.
0: Absolutely. And again, uh, you can check out Jim on IG, stay alive GN and on Twitter at novelstay. And all of the links I just mentioned are going to be in the episode descriptions on all the podcast platforms as well as on YouTube. If you are checking this out on YouTube or BitChute, make sure that you're shooting us a like, comment, subscribe, and share. Don't forget to visit spreadthedreadpodcast.com where you'll find links to all of the podcast platforms, our YouTube, BitChute, Facebook, IG, our shop, and our newly launched Patreon. Jim, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thank you, I greatly appreciate it. Any closing words for the Dreadheads? Are you good?
1: Uh, Closing words for the Dreadheads. Always, um,
2: you know, I know that, uh, you have
1: a lot of horror or a lot of choices, and I'm very happy that you would consider listening to me and, and, and reading my stuff. I really am. So, thank right. you very much.
0: Absolutely. And as I always close out, I'll tell everyone again I'm John, and I'll talk to you soon.
2: Shut up! Oh my God, I don't care!